There are certain stories in every family that have been told and retold and exaggerated so often that they have risen to the point of legend. You know, the story that, that dad has to tell every year at Thanksgiving about the time 50 years ago when he had to tell the boss what he could do with that particular job. And that lets the family know this is what it means to stand up for yourself. This is what it means to be a man. Or, you know, the story of when Junior hit the walk-off home run to win the state championship. These stories that just become part of the family lore. Some of those stories are humorous. Some of those stories are tragic. Some of those stories are good. Some are very, very bad. Some are just plain ugly. But every, every family has those stories. And my family has a lot of those stories, of course. And one of them has to do with my mom and dad when they were still dating. And I hope they don't hear me tell this, but it's a true story, at least as I understand it. My mom and dad were high school sweethearts. They met, I think, when they were um, 15, but I know in high school, at McDowell High School in Marion, North Carolina. And just to paint the picture for you, my, my mother came from a, a very conservative Methodist family. And when I say very conservative, I mean just a couple steps past Little House on the Prairie conservative, all right? Um, they didn't quite enter the 20th century until a few years ago. But my dad... came from a family of uh, proud Alabamians from DeKalb County that moved to North Carolina in the early 70s. And in high school, just so you know, my dad was the editor of the school paper, and that sounds pretty harmless. But legend has it that at one particular school trip, all of the staff of the high school paper met at some kind of high school newspaper conference, which sounds horrible. <laughs> But he hooked up with um, the, the staff of a paper from a Native American high school. And he spent the weekend with them. They went to a Jimmy Buffett concert. And my dad earned the nickname Chief Firewater. So that'll let you know a little bit about my dad's high school career. And given that was his background, um, when my papa, when my mom's dad had the opportunity to take a job a couple hours away from the Carr family, he jumped at the chance. And when they were 16, my, my mom and my dad were separated because my papa took a new job and moved his whole family a couple hours away. And so my mom and dad were stuck like Romeo and Juliet, where it seemed like you know, fate was going to keep them apart. And they said their tearful goodbyes, and eventually mom and dad broke up. And I don't know all of the details after that. I know that, uh, at least I think that my mom maybe dated a couple of guys in South Carolina. And I, who knows what my dad did. I'm afraid, to, he probably don't remember. I'm afraid to, I'm afraid to guess. Um, but I've often wondered. My mom and dad were together in high school. Then they break up and have to live a couple hours of, apart. What if that was the end of the story? What if my mom moves to South Carolina and there she meets her soulmate, the love of her life? Or what if my dad just, you know, found some other girl at high school and what if that was it? What would that mean for me? Would there be a me? <laughs> right? My whole future depended on a story 
in my family that I wasn't even a part of yet? Or what if my grandfather hadn't taken a job in McDowell County, North Carolina in 1973? Where my dad could meet my mom at McDowell County High School. All these little things that just happened to work together to make me who I am. Now, of course, the job turned out to be a bust. My papa moved back home. They got back together, and here I am. We all lived happily ever after. Or in my case, I lived. Um, <laughs> the story that we're going to read tonight in Abraham's family is a story that is more important for my life than the story of my mom and dad getting together and staying together as teenagers. It's more important for your family than any of the family legends that have been passed down through the generations to you. This story is vital for understanding our faith, our relationship with God, how God relates to us, and what it means to be the covenant people of God. This is one of the most essential stories in human history, one of the most vital stories in the Bible, and one of the most crucial stories of your life. And it's in Genesis chapter 15. Let's read this together. Genesis chapter 15. And we'll read the whole chapter, so we'll begin in verse 1. Genesis chapter 15 and verse number 1. Genesis 15, 1 begins, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. 
By the time you get to Genesis chapter 15, Abram has been following the Lord somewhere in the ballpark of 10 years. And over the course of that decade, Abraham has logged a lot of miles. He's moved out of Ur of the Chaldees, which the Lord mentions there in verse number 7. He ends up in Canaan, what we would think of mostly as modern-day Israel. He goes from there down into Egypt, then back again, here and there and everywhere else, living a life of a pilgrimage of faith to the Lord. And as we've studied this pilgrimage up to this point over the last few chapters of the book of Genesis, you've seen how God has defended Abraham, how God has protected Abraham, because God had promised the world to Abraham. And in times of famine, when there wasn't enough to go around, God was faithful to Abraham. In times of Abraham's disobedience, when Abraham was not on the right path, when he zigged when he should have zagged, God was faithful to Abraham. In times of disappointment, in times of family crisis, in times of separation and difficulty, God has proven over and over again that He is faithful to Abraham. And I hope you are beginning to see already how the story of this family is not primarily the story of their faithfulness to God. It is primarily the story of God's faithfulness to them. This is a family that is going to be dysfunctional and grow ever more dysfunctional. Just wait till we get to the next chapter. But as dysfunctional as they may be, they are still a family held together by the promises of God. But, even though Abraham believes the promises of God in his heart, he still hasn't held those promises in his hands. Even though God has promised to make Abraham a great nation, he still hasn't put the crib together. The diapers are still in their boxes. No reason to get in a hurry to paint the nursery. Because Abraham has not yet seen his promised child. And at this point, Abram, it seems, perhaps his faith is starting to waver. Maybe he's growing frustrated. Certainly confused, wondering, Lord, what's taking so long? I know none of us have ever asked the Lord that, but in this moment when Abram seems to be struggling with his faith, God appears to him as a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, laying the foundation for everything that would happen for the rest of Abram's life, looking ahead hundreds of years, even looking ahead to where we sit tonight, as this passage reveals to us how our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God interacts with us as His people, in particular here, set against the backdrop of a family crisis. And so this begins to introduce us to the covenant family of God. And it begins as Abram asks faith questions. The Bible begins in verse number 1 where it says, After these things. Now you think, well, what things? Well, the things that happened last week in chapter number 14. The battle that Abram had with Keterleomer and where he allied himself with the king of Sodom and all of that kind of stuff where Abram rescued Lot. And it seems as if Abram comes back from that battle has a man who's probably hovering right around 80. And as it kind of settles in on him, what he's just been through, as the adrenaline surge leaves his body, Abram probably starts to think, like any sane person would think, dude, I could have died back there. You can imagine coming home from battle thinking, goodness, what if things would have been different? Everything turned out good, but what if it hadn't? Have you ever had that experience? Maybe you've been in like a car wreck. I've had that experience. 
driven a truck off the road and fight my way through the thorns to get back out of the woods and think, man, what if that would have went just a little bit differently? And then you start to ask yourself things like, well, who would have taken care of my kids? What would have happened to my family? What then? What, what if? What now? And Abram seems to be asking those questions when the Lord comes to him and says, Abram, I am your shield and I am your great reward and your reward will be very great. Abram, I've been the one to protect you in the past and Abram, I'm the one who guarantees your future. It's a great promise from God. But notice how that promise from God is met by Abram in verse number 2. And I think this says everything. God says, Abram, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram says, okay, Lord, what will you give me? For I continue. That is, I'm walking, I go on day after day childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. God, you promised that I was going to have children. God, you promised that you were going to make of me a great nation. God, you promised you were going to give me a great family. And now all I've got is Eliezer of Damascus. Lord, what gives? What's the deal? What's the problem? Put it another way. God, why are you not holding up your end of the bargain in this relationship? You ever been there? You ever wondered about that? If you forgive me, I would commend this kind of praying to you. I know that often we think that the language of praise is the only really appropriate language, the proper language for the people of God. But y'all, there's nothing wrong with taking your struggles and your frustrations and your pain to God in prayer. There's nothing wrong with taking your disappointment to Him. There's nothing wrong with telling God what He already knows to be true. God doesn't expect you to sugarcoat your soul in times of crisis when you come to pray. In fact, the Bible is full of that kind of praying. In the book of Psalms in particular, you find this vocabulary of people who are in pain, praying out of their pain as they are disoriented with God, disoriented with themselves, and disoriented with life, saying things like, God, how long? How long? Lord, where are you? Or Psalm 22 the words that Jesus quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, why do I feel so alone? God, why do I feel abandoned? God, why did things turn out the way that they turned out? I would suggest to you today that praying that way is not a sign of a lack of faith. Actually, it's a sign of abundant faith, a mature faith that is wrestling with these issues Godward. Saying, Lord, I don't get it, I don't understand, but God, I'm bringing it to you. God, here it is. And so Abram is praying that way, taking his questions to God. You see him ask, God, how can I know? Verse number 8, how can I know? God, I need some certainty, I need some guarantees, because Sarah and I have been on this roller coaster of infertility. And if you've ever ridden that roller coaster, then you know what it's like every month to get your hopes up, only to be disappointed. To be excited about the possibility of having a child. Then to have the truth come crashing in on you. And to have that happen month after month and year after year and decade after decade is exhausting. And Abram is exhausted. And he begins to pour out his heart to God in faith saying, Lord, I've got nothing but Eliezer of Damascus and you have given me no offspring. But in that the word of the Lord comes to him. And he says, no, this man shall not be your heir. Abram, there are bigger plans than what you can see. There are things happening that are beyond your comprehension. In fact, Abram, let's go take a walk in verse number 5. 
Abram, if you could look up. I love the way the Lord says this. I didn't really think about it until I just read it a minute ago. Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them. Abram, you can't count that high. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Abram, look up. I'm going to do something bigger than you could ever conceive of. I'm going to do something greater than you could ever dream of. Abram, I've got your pain well in hand. But I would just point out to you today that Abram's pain is related to his family. His question is, well, Lord, when am I going to have my child? You promised my child. When's it happening? For Abram, that child represented his future. It really was the way it worked in the ancient world, and to some degree in our world, that your kids took care of you when you get old. That's a terrifying thought for some of y'all, ain't it? I mean, good gracious. They represent your future. They, represent, they represented financial security. The more of them you had, the better off you were. But for Abram, in a unique way, unlike most people that have ever lived, his children represented his identity. Don't miss this. Abram left his family and left his homeland. And his explanation was, well, Yahweh, the one true God, appeared to me and promised me that he was going to make me a great nation. If Abraham does not have any kids, then Abraham is not a man of faith. Abraham's a lunatic. His reputation, his identity is rotting on this. His faith is rotting on this. Lord, where are my children, when are your promises going to come true to me? And I think more often than not, folks, if we're honest, the greatest crises we face in life really do have to do with our families, don't they? Because our families represent our future. They represent the people we love the most, the people that we spend the most time with, the people that we invest in, the people that have our hopes and our dreams and our fears all wrapped up together. I think about those two little guys sitting back there with Corey and Jess. My hopes and my fears for the future are wrapped up in their lives. My greatest fears are sitting there in those seats. And you know what that's like if you're part of a family. We're all part of a family. We all know what it's like. The greatest wounds we carry come from our families, don't they? We've been talking about that with our men and better man. The greatest wounds we carry as men often come from our fathers. And that's the kind of crisis that Abraham is in. The crisis of his soul, wondering, God, how long are you going to wait to keep your promises. But it's not just Abram. When you get into verse number 12 and a little bit further, God begins to speak and he says in verse number 13, Abram, you are going to have children. Your children will be a great nation. But generations from now, your children, your descendants are going to find themselves enslaved in Egypt. For 400 years, Abram, they're going to be in chains wondering, where is our God? What's taking him so long? Why is he not answering? And I hope and I like to imagine that one of those descendants of Abraham would come along every now and then in Egypt and say, you know, God's going to get us out of this. Because God promised he would. God told Abram that he would. And we know that God kept all of his promises to Abram. And so if God did it for our great-grand-great-great-whatever-grandfather Abraham, he's going to do it for us. And then somebody would say, well, how can you be sure Say, oh, don't you remember the story of how Abraham and Sarah laughed at God and God gave them a little bitty baby boy named Isaac and said, why don't y'all just name him Laughter because God gets the last laugh. Well, I'm not sure that God's going to come through. Oh, don't you remember how God came through for Abram? 
When it seemed like there was no future and it seemed like there was no hope and even Abram was having a hard time believing. Don't you remember that God kept his word to Abram? Don't you remember from the story of Abram that even though sometimes it seems like God hasn't kept every promise he's made to us, God has never broken a single promise he made to us. Be encouraged. God will work. Friends, this story is given for us and for our families too. Because the God who was faithful to Abraham to put Isaac in his nursery is the God who was faithful to bring the Egyptians out of their slavery. And he is the God who's going to be faithful to your family too. So that you can rest assured and know beyond any shadow of a doubt that sometimes it seems like God has not yet kept his promises, but he has never broken a promise. And in time, the God who makes promises will keep them. So there's faith questions. God, how long? But the text moves on to talk about faith's answer. There's an answer that comes to Abram's faith from the Lord. God, how long? God, where are my children? God, why is this taking so long? God, I don't know how much longer I can go on like this. And God has an answer. Verse number 8, he asks, how am I to know? God, I need some certainty. Wouldn't you like to have a little certainty from the Lord sometimes? Lord, just send me a letter from heaven. Lord, just text me. Lord, just give me some certainty. And the Lord says, okay, you want it? Against this swirling ambiguity in Abram's heart, against the confusion and against the fear, he says, all right, bring me a heifer three years old. A female goat, not a male goat. Three years old. A two-year-old won't do it for it. It's got to be three years old. A ram three years old. A turtle dove and a young pigeon. The only thing that's missing is a partridge and a pear tree. What in the world? <laughs> Abram, here's your certainty. Here's your certainty, Abram. Empty out the petting zoo and bring them here before me. Okay. And then, verse number 10... He brought him all these. Cut them in half. And laid each half over against the other. Now that sounds like absolute insanity to us. But not to Abraham. Because when God said, Abraham, here's what you're going to do. Here's how I'm going to prove myself to you. Abraham, bring the three-year-old heifer. Bring the three-year-old goat. Bring the three-year-old ram. And bring this handful of birds. Abraham knew exactly what he was hearing. He knew that he was hearing God speak to him in covenant language. In fact, you can see this in verse number 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. What God is doing in this passage is he's entering into a covenant agreement with Abraham. And the idea and our understanding of covenant is one of the most essential concepts in all of the Bible. Because it points to how God relates to his people. So what is a covenant? It's not a contract. It is an agreement, but it's maybe a little bit more complex than we think. Typically, a covenant in the ancient world would be a political arrangement. In fact, if you look back in Genesis chapter 14 and verse number 13, where the Bible says that Abram allied himself with um, the whoever, whoever these guys are, names you can't pronounce anyway, Eskel and Aner and all this. When the Bible says that, the, that Abram allied himself with them. It's the same word for covenant. They had an agreement. They had an arrangement with one another. And the way a covenant would typically work is that somebody in authority or somebody with power would come to a lesser vassal. Often a king would come to a lesser ruler or one emperor would come to a lesser nation and he would begin to make arrangements and promises with conditions 
that would govern their political relationship. So it sounds something like this. Not exactly, but something like this. I am Jesse the First of the Northern Carolina. And I have delivered you from the Raiders beyond the Five Mile. The bands from Adamsville and Graysville and the Mountain of Olive. And you shall serve me and obey me. And thou shalt provide for me two racks of ribs from Dreamland every week. A covenant is an agreement between two parties that have an existing relationship that includes promises and includes conditions. And the way that they would ratify this covenant, the way that they would make it official, is by doing what Abram does here in this text, by involving bloodshed. And they did this, I guess, because nobody thought to call a lawyer, but here, instead of making paperwork, they're going to have a visceral and a visual image. Where the Bible says here, if you notice it, Abram slaughters these animals, and he laid each half over against the other. And so what he does is he butchers these animals and he has a walkway between them. And the way a covenant would be ratified would be the two parties who were entering into covenant together would walk between those dead carcasses together, often hand in hand or arm in arm, saying, I'm going to keep my promises to you. And if I don't keep my promises to you, then I want what happened to these animals to happen to me. This is how serious I am about keeping my word to you. This is how far I will go to keep my word to you. And so it involves bloodshed. and It involves death to say this is the promise of my life for your life. In fact, you can see that even in the Hebrew of verse number 18. The Bible says, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. The translation of the verb made is actually totally wrong. And, and, and the reason it's wrong is because it wouldn't make sense in English, because it's the Hebrew verb cut. In Hebrew, you didn't make covenants, you cut covenants. Cut covenants, which is what Abraham does, right? He cut a cow in half. He cut a goat in half. He cut a ram in half. He didn't cut the birds in half, though. I guess he had enough. But then something peculiar happens. Everything up until verse number 11 is clicking along in a way that makes perfect sense. God, the great power, is going to descend to make an arrangement with Abram, the lesser power. They're going to walk through these animals together, making promises to each other, and saying, here's what we will do for one another. But then Abram, who's exhausted from cutting these cows in half, and I assume that's got to be hard work. Like, Abram didn't have any power tools. This is not going to be easy. The heifer's not going to go down without a fight. He begins to shoo away the birds of prey that are coming to the carcasses. The sun goes down. Abram's eyes start to get heavy. A long day of work. He's exhausted. He's old. He's tired. He falls asleep. And then when Abram falls asleep, the language is fascinating. After Abram is asleep, darkness descends. Dreadful, horrific darkness. The Lord speaks. He promises no for certain. Remember, that's what Abram wanted. He wanted certainty. No for certain that your offspring, and as your children, your generations, they will be in slavery in Egypt. Then verse 17, after the Lord finishes speaking, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold a smoking fire pot. 
and a flaming torch. Something dark and smoking, but also something burning with light passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This is all wrong. Because the two parties don't pass through the blood and the guts together, promising to one another, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, then I hope what happens to these animals happen to me. This is all wrong. Because God passes through alone. Because He passes through death, saying to Abraham, Abraham, I would rather die that break my promises to you. And this is how God relates to His people all through Scripture. All through Scripture. You could say that God made a covenant with Adam. I think He probably did. But certainly the language is clear in Genesis chapter number 9 that God made a covenant with Noah. He made an agreement. Noah, I will never again flood the earth and destroy it. But I will put my rainbow as a sign and a seal of that covenant in the sky that we still see to this day to prove that before God would pour out His wrath on the whole world, He would take that wrath into Himself. And then God makes this covenant with Abraham. And then God makes a covenant with who? The nation of Israel. That's what the Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy are all about. That God says, I am the Lord. This is Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. This is who I am and this is what you will do. You will have no other gods before me. And if you do that, the book of Deuteronomy, I will bless you. You will multiply. You will prosper. You will have more blessings and you can count more blessings than you can handle. But if you disobey, the heavens will be like brass. The ground will dry up and eventually you can even be exiled out of your own land. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to David and he makes a covenant with David. And he says to David, David... I don't need you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to give you an everlasting throne and a reign that will never end. And this promise, David, is for all people. For all people. And over and over and over, you see God using this kind of language of saying, I would rather die than break my promises to my people. Because our God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God until... You get to a dark upper room at the end of Jesus' life in Luke chapter number 22. And at the last supper, the last Passover meal, the Lord Jesus takes the cup after they had eaten and said, This cup, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Where God says to all of His covenant people, Yes, I would rather die than break my promises to you. But I will die to keep my promises to you. Our God is the God who walks through death alone to secure His relationship with His people. To say, I will never fail you. I will never fail to keep my word. I will never fail to hold up my end of the bargain. I will never leave you. I will be there and I will die to prove it. I will die to make that relationship. I will take death into myself to make a covenant with my people. And when you understand this, then you can start to at once understand the whole message of the Bible. That at the cross, God did take His own wrath into Himself. Listen, that rainbow is not just a pretty reflection of water refracting through droplets in the sky. 
A bow is an instrument of war. A bow is an instrument of death. And which way is that rainbow turned? The bow is not turned towards you. It's turned toward heaven because our God said, I will take the pain into myself so that I can have my people living in peace. And then God comes to Abram and says, Abram, oh, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And who is the son of Abram? Who is the blessing to the nations? It is not the geopolitical nation of Israel in the Middle East now. It is Jesus, the true Israel, who has blessed a bunch of pagan Gentiles like us by grafting us into the family of God. Who is the true son of David that reigns on the everlasting throne? It is the Lord Jesus who was born in the little town of Bethlehem, David's own city, to his own son Joseph and to his own daughter Mary, who says to all of the Gentiles outside of his kingdom, come to me, come to me. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of all these covenants. And who is the true Israel? Who is the true Israel who earned all of God's blessings and yet took all of God's curses? It's Christ. It's Christ. That's why this passage is so essential to see this is how God relates to us. God never calls on us to walk through the bloodshed alone to say, God, here's what we'll do for you. No, God says, I'll do it for you. I will be the faithful covenant partner that you could never be. And I will never break my promises to you. So how does Abram respond to this? Well, we've seen faith's questions and faith answers. We see faith's response. Back in verse number 6. Abram believed the Lord and he counted to him his righteousness. Now, you should not take that verse to mean that Abram didn't believe in God up to this point. But now he does believe the Lord. Uh, Really, what this is doing is this is giving you an overview of, David's, of Abraham's life. That Abraham lived a life not of perfect faith. Nobody does. But he lived a life of true faith. He believed the Lord. How does faith respond to the promises of God? Well, faith trusts. Faith trusts that God will keep His word. In fact, when the Bible says there, and he believed the Lord, the Hebrew word for believe is a Hebrew word that you already know. You just didn't know you knew it. So you're smarter than you give yourself credit for. The Hebrew word is verb form of the Hebrew word amen, which we use in church all the time. And we use it when somebody says something we agree with or some, somebody says something we like, particularly, especially at the end of our prayers. And the idea is that we're saying, so be it, or let it be so, or this is true, this is correct. What? Abram is doing in believing God is he's giving God his amen. God makes all of these promises and he gives God his amen saying it will be as God said. Y'all, that's faith. Faith means believing that God will keep his word. And faith means trusting that God will do as he said and ordering our lives around the promises of God. That's faith. That's faith. Faith is not an emotion. Faith is not... Something that we have to churn up in ourselves to earn God's favor. I'll talk more about that in a second. But faith is simply believing that God keeps His Word. And living as if God will keep His Word. If you want a great example of that, read the next chapter of the whole messy affair between Abraham and Hagar. Because in that passage, Abraham's not living by faith. He's not giving God his amen. But here he does. Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe. And this becomes one of the key verses in all the Bible. Genesis 15, 6. It's quoted... Numerous times in the New Testament, Romans chapter number 4, where Paul is talking about justification by faith. 
It's mentioned in Galatians chapter number 5, where the Apostle Paul again is talking about justification by faith. Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How does God deal with his people? God makes promises and God keeps them. We believe them. That is how God relates to his people. Now, let me be clear about one thing. I want you to be absolutely clear about this. It took me a long time to learn this. But I think if you can learn it, Spirit help us, I think if you can learn it, revolutionize the way you think about life and the way you view your Christian walk. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. We can read that verse, and we can get really, really close to getting it right and blow everything up. By thinking this means that Abraham's faith was a righteous act. Now, don't get me wrong. It was, it was a righteous act to a degree. But what we can think is, yes, we are sinners. No, we cannot do anything good to save ourselves. Yes, Jesus came to save us. And we need to believe in Jesus to be saved. And so we can't do anything to save ourselves. But the one good thing we can do that impresses God is belief. That's the one thing that we can do to earn God's favor is to believe. But if we believe that, friends, if we think that's what faith is, faith is the one good thing that we can do that really impresses God and wins Him over, then we don't understand what faith is. This passage shows us what faith is. Faith is resting in the God who keeps the promises. Here's what I mean. Who makes the promises in this passage? Who keeps the promises in this passage? Who took a nap in this passage? Who does the work? God is the one who does the work. Faith is recognizing that God does the work. It is trusting in Him to do the work. Faith says, God, it's yours. My family is yours. My forgiveness is yours. My future is yours. God, it's all yours. Faith is not the one good work that you can do to finally win God over. Faith is a refusal to work. And it's resting in Christ and God's promise. Faith trusts, but faith waits. As wonderful and as uplifting as this passage is, nothing has changed for Abraham. Circumstantially, nothing has changed, has it? Doesn't have a child? Nothing. No positive pregnancy test? Nothing. And so Abram finishes this chapter exactly the way he started. By waiting. Y'all, I know we're all in a hurry. But evidently God isn't. I'm just saying anecdotally from my experience, God really doesn't seem to be in a big hurry to do much of anything. He takes his time. He's happy letting me wait. Is it not your experience that the Christian life is a life of waiting? A life of trusting? A life of thinking... Well, why would God be in a hurry? I mean, if God is who He is in the Bible, and He is, why does He need to be in a hurry? Faith waits. And often those moments of waiting in our journey of faith are tied to our family. Waiting for God to answer a prayer for a child. Waiting for God to change some situation with our marriage. Waiting for God to deliver in some way, waiting for God to do what only God could do. We wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait. 
But while you wait, while you wait, just remember that God's plans are not limited by your clock. God's plans are not tied down to your calendar. God does not have to be in as big of a hurry as you are. Because the God of Genesis chapter 15, the God of the Bible, is the God who is able to give children to people who are long past childbearing age. Paul would describe it in Romans chapter number 4 by saying that God was able to bring life to Sarah's dead womb. Our faith, God, y'all, this is everything. Our faith believes in a God who raises the dead. That's what Abram believed. That God was able to bring life in the middle of death. And if our God is able to bring life in the middle of the death, wait. Because it can't get so bad, it can't get so hopeless, that God can interject a little resurrection right in the middle of it. But there's also a clue here that God's plans may be a whole lot bigger than we think. Because the Lord says, and this is some bad news in this passage, that Abram's descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years. That's a hard pill to swallow. But, at the very end of verse number 16, the Lord says they will come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's an interesting little statement, isn't it? Abram, they will be slaves, but in the right time they will come back because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, Abram, they have not sinned to the point where they have exceeded my patience yet. Now God knows they will, and they do. But he says, Abram, I'm still giving them space to repent. Over the next few centuries, I'm still going to be gracious towards the Amorites. I'm still going to offer them a chance, a hope of finding me. Abram didn't care about the Amorites. Abram cared about having a baby. That's what Abram cared about. And yet, as God expands his horizons, he shows him that his plans are so much bigger than anything Abram was thinking about. And I just want to point that out to you, not because there are any particular Amorites in your life, even though there might be, but because I want you to know God sees the big picture that you can't. God sees the full story. God sees your life and all of the eternal connections that are made through you and your faithfulness that you simply cannot know. In 1978 or whenever it would have been, that'd be about right, 1978, when my parents broke up and they're thrown into teenage turmoil, Tears and heartbreak and whatever else. They never would have imagined. They could not have possibly seen that some almost 50 years later that their son would be preaching the gospel. Neither one of them were believers really at that time. Would be preaching the gospel in Alabama. And that for me to be here tonight to preach Genesis 15 to you my papa would have to move back home from South Carolina. And in October of 1980, after they graduated high school, they would have to go to the McDowell County Courthouse 
and a justice of the peace would marry them. They didn't know all that yet. They didn't know that a few years after they got married, they would have a little girl. And they would name her Nicole Danielle Carr. And they could not have thought when they broke up in 78 or thereabouts that my dad's foul mouth at that time in front of my sister would so terrify my mother that my sister at three or four might say a bad word in front of my mama <laughs> that my mom would start to preach the familiar sermon of young wives everywhere. We need to get this child in church. And they could not have imagined in 1978 that they would end up at Central Baptist Church in Morganton, North Carolina, under the ministry of a, of a man, we'll say, named Gary Baldwin, who would preach the gospel to my parents. And they could not have imagined in 1978 that on a Saturday night in May of 1983, my dad would sit in a lawn chair in the front yard of his home in Marion, North Carolina, drinking a beer, realizing that he needed to lay down his sin and come to Jesus. And they could not have imagined that the next Sunday morning, my father would walk the aisle of Central Baptist Church and would take the Lord as his Savior. And they certainly could not have imagined that on July the 16th, 1985, that his parents, Don and Ann Carr, formerly of Collinsville, Alabama, early on a Tuesday morning, would drive their daughter-in-law in an old Dodge truck to Grace Hospital in Morgan, North Carolina, where their little boy Jesse would be brought into the world. And they could not have imagined in 1978 that at 13, their son, either because of his insanity or the Lord's calling, would surrender to preach the gospel. And they never could have imagined that that son would grow up to make friends with a guy in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who pastored a church in Birmingham, Alabama, that he would leave that church, and then that that church would call him to come be their pastor. And they could not have imagined in 1978 that five and a half plus years after that guy became, that their son became the pastor of Sharon Heights Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, that he would take the word of God, point people to Genesis 15, and say, God keeps his promises. God always keeps his word. Trust him and wait. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you providentially order all the steps of our lives, all the days of our lives. Lord, all things work together for our good, and we're thankful. God, give somebody the faith to believe this. Somebody the faith to believe it.